0: We pray you will be blessed by today's message. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 10. When you go to sign up for game night, you'll notice that there is a sign-up sheet next to game night for Bible school. If we all do... The church at work assignment, we're going to need more names on the Bible school worker list. So go ahead and in faith, sign your name up for that as well. And we will put you to work. Luke 10, would you pray with me? Lord, we know this one today. We've got this one down pat. We know this story of this interaction, of this parable. We know it backwards and forwards, inside and out. We know how it has played into all sorts of advertisements and campaigns over time. We know this one So Lord, first of all, forgiveness for our pride today for thinking there is nothing left for us to learn from you. And secondly, Lord, give us wisdom and openness to hear from you this morning that we may be better in how we go forward to live our lives as followers of you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The intervening verses from where we ended last week in Luke 10 and resume this week recount what happened to the 70 after Jesus sent them out. Some, it would appear, met with unqualified successes, driving out demons and the like. Others... Like those, it appears, that went to Chorazin and Bethsaida, did not have as successful a journey as the others did. Such is life, particularly the life of the nomad disciple. Sometimes we can't lose. Sometimes we can't win. Sadly, sometimes the passage of time reveals that which we thought were once successes do not hold up over time and show themselves to be failures. And while the reverse is also true, let us be honest this morning... You and I do not focus on these instances as much as we focus on the real and the perceived failures that are hallmarks in our life. With these building up over time, how does the nomad disciple continue on their journey with purpose? How does the nomad disciple, in the face of seemingly continuous setbacks, have the momentum to keep going when it seems that everything is working against them. It really, I believe, boils down to three words, the arrangement of which, if we are honest, we spend our entire lives as disciples reassessing. We are either saying who I am, This is who I am. Or we're asking, who am I? Three words. Three words that I believe find themselves at the heart of the interaction that occurs between Jesus and the lawyer in the text today. Verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Put to the test, Luke tells us. We shouldn't understand this phrase as, as a classroom motif. It, it, he's not giving a, a passing and failing grade here. He, he's not necessarily, I think, uh, trying to, to capture Jesus. I don't get that impression I think it is the lawyer saying to Jesus, I want to know who you are. What is the creed of your life? What keeps you going? What is it that that is that internal drive that that just makes you tick? We don't know why the lawyer is asking this question. Maybe it is the fact that the lawyer is asking this question because he has has seen Jesus maybe before. He has interacted with Jesus. He has heard about Jesus. And so he wants to, to find out what it is that makes Jesus tick so that it can be what makes him tick. We don't know. We can see, though, through the remainder of the passage... That Jesus is saying this, and all that it incurs, is who I am. Jesus says, I am open. I am willing to engage. Verse 26 tells us, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus did not have to answer the man's question. In fact, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, for some reason, we don't have him answering a lot of questions. This is one of the rare instances where Jesus answers a question. Jesus could have given him some flip answer to just shut the guy down from the beginning. He did none of this. He takes time throughout the conversation to bring this lawyer along, instructing him by allowing the lawyer to answer questions and to make his own realizations and conclusions. He tells a parable which at its heart is what does that parables do not have exact answers and meanings it's sort of left open to interpretation so as so as for us to gather what we need to from it beloved are we this open to the world around us or do we rush to shut them down We like to say very often, well, that's how it is. If you don't like it, you can get over it. Very often, we refuse to engage. We refuse to engage because we think that the world is closed to any matter of faith. But if you and I truly believe that the writer of Ecclesiastes is correct, that God has put eternity into the hearts of every individual we will recognize that folks are asking questions continuously like the lawyer does here. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to gain eternity? They may not be asking in explicit terms as the lawyer does, but let us be understanding of the fact that they are asking and we must be willing to engage with them. And let me go a step farther and say we must be willing to engage with them on their terms. It is not coincidence that Jesus has a conversation with a lawyer about the law. It is not coincidence that Jesus has a conversation with fishermen about fish. It is not coincidence that Jesus has a conversation with a woman at a well one day about water. He is engaging them. He is open to them and engaging them on their terms. But He's engaging above all else. He is not shut off to them. He does not shut them down. He brings them in. Are our lives marked by such openness? Jesus asks the lawyer, remember he's engaging with him in a give and take that the lawyer is accustomed to. He says, uh, what's written in the law? And the lawyer responds with a legal answer. Verse 27, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength And with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But that is not sufficient for the lawyer. That is not sufficient for him. He says in verse 29, But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The lawyer is attempting to justify himself. And and the word here uh, for justify is, is he's trying to prove that he is righteous. He is trying his best to show just how righteous he is. And in doing so, what is he doing? He is narrowing the parameters of what Jesus has said because he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Because I am righteous and I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing at all times. So I want to know just who is my neighbor. Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which when taken as a whole, says Jesus essentially saying, I am not in the business of narrowing parameters. It is not who I am to narrow. Beloved, the fact of the matter is is that the church is becoming increasingly narrow as we declare our own righteousness. We, the Christians of this world, are continuously putting parameters on who is a Christian What does it mean to be a Christian? And what is a church? I wish I had a dollar for every time I have seen in the last year pastors say something to this effect. If your pastor doesn't preach on fill-in-the-blank subject, then you need to find a new church this Sunday because you're not in a Bible-believing New Testament church. I find it interesting that the the fill-in-the-blank that often occurs there, they never get up and they say, if your pastor doesn't preach on grace and mercy and the overwhelming love of God, you need to find a new church. I find that interesting because I suspect most of them don't focus on the grace and mercy and overwhelming love of God. Beloved, you and I would do well to remember that as we seek in our own righteousness, not in Christ's righteousness, but in our own righteousness, to draw tighter and tighter circles about who is a Christian and what is a church, that ultimately we will draw a circle so tight that we ourselves cannot stand in it. And yes... I do understand that there needs to be parameters. Jesus, I think, clearly says that throughout His teachings. But, beloved, you and I are not the ones to draw those parameters. Jesus is. Jesus is. And we ought to be very careful, very, very careful, in narrowing the parameters of the gospel so that no one can ever find a home. It is not without a reason that Jesus said whosoever believes in me. He leaves it broad. He doesn't say that you have to be this or that or the other. You know, if I listen to many pastors these days and many Christians these days, I would find that you have to be on one side of the political spectrum or the other to be a Christian. And if you're not, which by the way is the side that they are on, then you're not a Christian. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Jesus says, whosoever. And to prove the point, he continues to tell the lawyer a story about three men verse 30 says this a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side so likewise a Levite when he came to that place and saw him passed by on the other side but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion the first two see the situation and they pass by so as to avoid the situation the priest a religious figure a pastor if you will avoids the situation. A Levite is not a priest. A Levite is a a person who's doing religious duties. In in Baptist life, guess what? That's all of us. (laughs) So now you found yourself in the story. And the Levite passes on. Why do they pass on? Do they not care? I don't think it's that they don't care. It's just that they have their cares misplaced. You see, they don't know if the man is dead. It says here that he's half dead. I don't know how you measure half dead and half live, But somehow or another, he appears, I think, to them to be dead. And because he is dead according to the law, then that means that he is unclean. And if this priest goes over there or if this Levite goes over there and he in any way touches the body, what happens? He becomes unclean unclean and if he becomes unclean that means he can't go and do his duties because the duty is important and so he shows no compassion the most unlikely one in this group beloved is the one who stops the samaritan the ones that jesus i mean jews treated as as really just no people spoke disparagingly of them continuously it is the samaritan who stops why because the samaritan is less concerned about duty than he is about doing the right thing jesus ultimately is saying here it's less about duty than it is about doing the right thing. Because isn't this who Jesus is? Isn't this who Jesus is? Doesn't He repeatedly interact with people who everyone else overlooks because it is the right thing to do? He doesn't care about duty. He doesn't care about the religious things He has to do. He is concerned right then about going and doing the right thing. How often, beloved, do we place duty over doing the right thing? We know the right thing. We just can't quite get there for for any number of reasons. That is not who we are called to be. Because the right thing is always going to point us to another position here of who Jesus is. And that is meeting the immediate need is paramount. Verse number 34 says this. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him the samaritan was not concerned about the risk to his own life how does the samaritan not know that the robbers are not hiding and can come after him he wasn't concerned about the need, the thieves he was concerned about the need The Samaritan is not concerned about how difficult this task may be. Do you I mean the guy's half dead and he's gonna lift him up and put him on a donkey. Do do we think that the the guy half dead is gonna be able to give him much help? No. Doesn't matter though. Doesn't matter how difficult it is, he's gonna help. He's not concerned about how inconvenient it is. This road down from Jerusalem to Jericho is is a steep decline. And it's not an easy path. And and so it would be easier on an animal. You might not lose your footing if you're on an animal. But what does he do? He puts the guy on the animal and he walks. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is. It's the right thing to do. Because the need is there. The need is immediate. Beloved, we don't spend the time we should worrying about needs like we should. I have a lot of colleagues and I'm not saying you shouldn't I'm not saying you shouldn't Tell the gospel during a funeral. But I have a lot of colleagues who believe that right then you should hammer the gospel into people. What is the immediate need, though? The immediate need is for the family to be consoled, the immediate need is for the family to know that they are loved, that they are cared for. That's the immediate need. And you can get to the, to the doing all the other things, beloved, if you can meet the immediate need. People will trust you if you meet the immediate need and can then go off and do all the other things that you need and are called to do with them. The guy here, the Good Samaritan, fixes, I shouldn't say fixes, it's a bad word. He tends to the guy's wounds. I was fascinated to learn that the word for wound here is trauma. It's not that it is, it is like could be translated trauma. No, the word in the Greek is actually trauma. We brought it into our language as trauma. It's, it's not, there's no difference here. Trauma, trauma. It's not like perichoresis and something else. Trauma, trauma trauma. So what does the guy do? He stops and tends to the guy's trauma. And it's plural, so it's traumas. I don't think this is by accident that Jesus tells it this way. And it's a question for us or whether we are concerned about the traumas of the world around us. And are we seeking to meet the immediate needs of those traumas? Because If we are, then we are showing mercy. Do we take the time to feel their pain? Or are we saying, it's not about us, so I'm not worried about it? Do we take the time to feel the hurts of a society around us? Or do we say, we just don't care because it doesn't concern me? Beloved, We're called to meet immediate needs. That's supposed to be who we are because that's who Jesus is. And we're also supposed to do the right thing. I suspect if we did those things more often, the world would listen to us more. How do I know that? I think the text points to it. Look at verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he's carried him down, and he's brought him to an inn. He spends the night tending to his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and doing all that. And then the next day, he gives the innkeeper two days' wages and says, keep tending to him, and if you spend more, I'll repay you when you get back. And what, it, what blew my mind on this trip through this text was the fact that the innkeeper didn't say anything back. The innkeeper didn't say, well, how do I know you're going to come back? Can, you're going to leave your, your donkey as collateral? No. Somewhere in the depths of my mind, it occurs to me that the innkeeper knew the Samaritan. He knew the Samaritan's reputation and he knew he could trust the Samaritan. Maybe the reason why he has this interaction before is because the Samaritan himself has fallen upon these thieves and robbers and he is willing to extend mercy because he has been there. You see why it's important to be concerned about everybody else's needs. But I think if we go even further, it's his reputation that precedes him. It's a reputation of mercy. Because ultimately, that's what the three words boil down to. Who am I? Who I am? It all boils down to here, Jesus says, it all is about mercy. Verse 36 Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Beloved, are our lives marked by mercy? Because ultimately, when we are open to people, when we are prioritizing meeting uh, immediate needs by healing traumas, when we refuse to to not narrow, but recognize that the old hymn is correct. There is a wideness in God's mercy, and He calls us to be just that wide. When we say that the overarching thing that we are going to do is to do the right thing, even at great cost to us, we are showing mercy. We are saying, mercy It's who I am. That is what the hallmark of Jesus' life was, was a continuous showing of mercy. And that is what the creed, who we are as nomad disciples should be for us. And maybe this morning for each of us, it goes back to that reordering of those three words and asking ourselves... Is this who I am? Am I mercy? Do I cherish mercy? Do I adore mercy, not just for myself, but to give it to others? A reminder of what Jesus, what God said through Micah. Micah 6.8 says, And He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Require! Don't miss that word. What does the word require of you? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I'll be honest with you, beloved. I don't see the church in our society today being able to be brushed with the paint of mercy. I see us far too often being merciless. I see us being closed. I see us being narrow. I see us making sure that we've checked the boxes instead of just doing the right thing. I've seen us prioritize everything other than meeting immediate needs. I don't see mercy. I don't see mercy yesterday in San Antonio Temple Beth El which is a Jewish synagogue could not hold its services because of a Verified threat of violence that was going to be done during the service. That bothers me. And I'll confess to you this morning that it sort of trailed out a spin of thought in my mind. What if that happened here? Not to Grove Park, because Grove Park isn't the other. We're not the other. Preacher, we don't have a synagogue here. Okay, let's take it to another then. We do have a mosque. Preacher, that's really the other. Yeah, but shouldn't we be concerned about it? Aren't everyone there made in the image of God? Doesn't everyone there need to know of God's love and God's mercy? Would we be willing to do the right thing there and stand up for them? What about if there was a Buddhist temple? That's the other, Mark. We're not supposed to do the other. You know what, beloved? I know of a God who came to this earth and lived among the other, the unholy, the unloving, the unrighteous, those who are nothing like Him. And He showed them mercy. Because of that, you and I will proclaim his name today. The question really is, though, those three words Who am I? And can you say, This mercy is who I am? Let's pray. Lord, help us answer the question. (laughs) We confess, Lord, we weren't prepared for the test today. The test has been uncomfortable. We've literally felt the heat. But we need to pass the test. We need to be known as a place of mercy. So help us, Lord. Help us to pass the test. And not to be left wondering who we are. But be able to say this, mercy, is who I am. It is my creed. It is what gets me going. It is what helps me to maintain momentum in the midst of, of great difficulty. It's who I am. we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit Grove Park Church. Dot .net and remember grace abound